0: Well, good morning. I'm so glad to see you all this morning. Last night when we started our lecture, it was raining cats and dogs. How many of you had cats and dogs pouring in your yard last night? Oh my goodness. Well, my name's Gina Beauchamp. I have a small group here on Wednesday mornings, and I'm so glad to see you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all these women, Lord God, that came to learn more about you, to dig into your word to glorify you. I pray, Lord, that we would be transformed in your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that my words would be accurate and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Rebecca gave us a great shove-off in our voyage of Colossians. She gave us a beautiful description of the grace that God gives us and the peace that we have in Christ. She encouraged us to treasure our relationship with the Lord and to live as residents of the kingdom of light instead of remaining in the kingdom of darkness. Well, this morning, I want to ask you, where do you go when you're looking for information? Go ahead, shout it out. Google. Internet, Google, Siri, right? <laughs> Who, what time is it in Italy? Who won the World Series? When is sunset? Is it going to rain today? And most importantly right now, what is the recipe for Rachel Ray's pumpkin pancake recipe? Right? <laughs> don't we all want to know that? Well, um, I was curious and decided to Google Jesus Christ. And I, the top five sites were, who is Jesus Christ? Most people don't know. Who is Jesus Christ? Got questions? Welcome to who Jesus is. Really? That sounds convincing, right? Uh, There's good news and learn the truth. Well, Jesus can also be found in Wikipedia. And I know that most of you know what Wikipedia is, but it is an online encyclopedia. And a user can go on, and they can change the facts, right, in Wikipedia. And they can change the facts to truth or to lies, right? And so when you're thinking about looking up Jesus Christ on the internet, the average person could get truth or they could get lies. And probably most of it could be lies. It could be made up. Things added to what the gospel really is, right? Well, I know that the Colossians did not have a Google search that they could do. But that is similar to what is happening in the book of Colossians. They are looking for other sources asking, who is Christ? They were turning to false teachings and that said that Jesus is not enough and that they needed to add to their belief system. So Paul seems to be addressing in our book four major questions, and that's what our outline is going to be this morning. The first is, who is Jesus Christ? And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. The second is, what has he done for sinners? The third is, what is our position before God? And the fourth, how are we walking in our faith? So let's take a look at Paul's answer to the first question of who Jesus is. In chapter 1, 15 through 19, boy, we saw a lot of indicatives in our homework this week, right? I kind of dare you to have found an imperative somewhere in there. (laughs) But Paul's description doesn't mince words, does it? It certainly challenged the false teaching of the time. Paul states five main truths about who Jesus is. So under our first point of who Jesus is, we'll have five subheadings. Jesus is God. He has a place of honor over all. He is creator. He is the head of the church. And he is preeminent. So let's read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Paul begins with the whopper. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is the God-man. As we studied in our lesson this week, we looked up Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. It's like God stamped out an image in front of them that was God. So, have you ever felt an envelope or a fine piece of paper? Now, I have to tell you, my fine piece of paper is uh, computer paper. But um, before, and have you ever seen it when it's been embossed? And so before the um, embossing happens, it's held inside the press, right? And this is just a little notary republic press. But when you put the pressure on it, out comes an image, right? onto the paper. Now, I know it's hard to see from the back, but you can feel that image. You can touch that image. It becomes tangible. But beforehand, it was held in here. It still existed as God, as Jesus, as the Holy Spirit existed before. Now, I know this is a poor likeness of who our Lord Jesus Christ is, but it just helped me to think of a tangible way of how he became flesh. His mother, his friends, his apostles, they could not only see him, they could feel him. He was tangible to them, and he was God. Before he became flesh, no one had seen God. So he was the physical imprint in the exact image of God. This was a challenge to them, because at the at the time of the writing of the Colossians, there was a teaching that was surrounding them that flesh was evil or bad, so how could God come into a body of flesh that is sinful when God is holy? How can God reside in a human form well in romans eight three Paul says he sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but the difference from being in our flesh is that Jesus was without sin in his flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, I was surprised to hear that when this book was written, it was harder for people of that day and age to believe that Jesus was a man than it was for for them to believe that he was God. It wasn't until three centuries later when they began to deny his divinity. In your homework this week, we asked you to look at the difference between humans who were made in the image of God and Jesus who was the image of God. The word image that describes the humans is selim in the Hebrew. It means resemblance, a representative figure, a shadow. Man was created with likeness, or resemblance of God. We have reason, thought, creativity, uniqueness, emotion, right, women? (laughs) Decision-making ability. These are all things that set us apart from the rest of creation. But Jesus was the image of the invisible God. He was the image. And that word image means, is icon in the Greek. It means essentially and absolutely the perfect representation and expression of the archetype of God the Father. Now, an archetype is the original pattern or model from which all things of the same kind are made. In John fourteen nine, Jesus says, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." And Paul says in Colossians two nine, "For in him the whole fullness of deity of de- deity dwells bodily." Well, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about him, Jesus Christ. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make that choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher— He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Boy, I love C.S. Lewis. (laughs) In Luke 9.20, Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So my question to you this morning is, Who do you say that Jesus is? The second point that we're going to make in who Jesus is, is Paul saying he's firstborn over creation. This phrase could be confusing at first, right? Thinking, how could Jesus be born if he always has been? And what does this whole thing about born mean? Well, I don't think Paul is referring to his, be- his birth in Bethlehem, although there was a point in time when he was born in Bethlehem. In the culture of that time, the firstborn was a place of honor. It was a place of inheritance. And Paul is referring to Jesus as the firstborn in a title of honor. It's in regard to his relationship with his father. Jesus is God. He has been God. He will be God. And God the Father is giving him honor by stating he is the firstborn. Paul has stated that Christ has this title. What I'd like to ask you to ask yourself this morning is where do you place him in your life? Does he have a place of honor in your life? Or are there other things that you have him sharing that title with? Where have you minimized him? or placed him below things that you cling to as more important. Well, thirdly, as we continue through the verses, we see the next statement of who Christ is, is creator. For by him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. These verses help us to see that Jesus was there from the beginning. Remember back in Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Jesus was there, right there at the time of creation. Not only was he there, all things were created through him and for him. And in verse 17, Paul says, and that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Well, that phrase in the Greek, all things hold together, means literally all things stand together. He holds the earth, he holds the gravity, the galaxy, the universe, our families, all these things he holds together. And in our class this morning, someone said, if he can hold the whole universe together, I think he can manage me. This message would have been important for the Colossians to hear, that all things surrounding them were created by Jesus. Because, uh, like we said, surrounding the church, there was this false teaching that material things and flesh were bad or evil. This was important for them to see that their thinking was being influenced by the culture and by the people around them. It would have caused them to look at themselves and those around them differently. They could have been so caught up at that time by flesh being evil that sometimes people even treated their flesh in an evil way not with respect as being made for and by and through Jesus. So since all things were created through him and for him, I want to ask you, how does this affect the way that you live each day? If I'm created for him, how am I demonstrating that to the world, to my neighbors, to my husband, to my kids, to my friends? How would each day be different if I viewed myself as created for a specific purpose, That was Christ's purpose that day. Well, our fourth point um, that Paul describes who Jesus is, is in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. One thing of note here is when you see the conjunction and, you know it's connecting it with the passage before it. And I know y'all know who Spurgeon is, but in case you don't, he was a well-thought-of theologian in the 1800s. And he says we need to pay attention to where the placement of the head of the body is here because he says it's not random. We are to see his place in creation and place of the head of the church as exalted. We are to see the church as a body with Jesus as the head. And the head means our authority or our direction. So I want us to think about it literally. And we did that in our class this morning. I thought that was interesting. Thank you, ladies. Um, That when we look at our bodies, we can't live without our heads, right? Everything is attached to our heads. This is a great picture of how Jesus is the control center, the brain. The very life of the church belongs to being connected to that head, doesn't it? Because the brain sends messages to the rest of the body, right? It can't exist without it. So I'm thinking, how would those Colossians have viewed this information? We've heard it many times, but it was new and it was fresh to them. In verse 219, Paul says that believers were not depending on Christ as the head. He says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. They were beginning to listen to those false teachers who were preoccupied with rules and spiritual beings and visions, they were shifting their attention from Christ onto the false teachings. He is not only the authority as the head, but he is also the source of provision. He is the one who empowers us to grow spiritually. So as we're thinking about Christ as the head, I want to ask if you view him as your head and your provision for spiritual growth. There are many voices that we could listen to, right? we have a great devotion from so-and-so, or we have a great blog that we follow. Well, how much time, in comparison, are you spending on that blog, or are you spending actually in the Word of God? Now, I'm not dissing blogs. They're fine. But I just want you to be mindful how much time you're spending there. So the fifth way that Paul describes who Jesus is in the second part of verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We saw earlier in the text that Jesus was there at creation, but now we see he is the beginning. He was firstborn before everything. He wasn't just there, but he is right there at beginning. He is also the firstborn from the dead. And this is a point of question, right? What does that mean? Well, although Jesus was not the first raised from the dead, he was the first raised through his own power into an immortal everlasting body he was there at the beginning he was there at first raising or he was there he was the first at raising himself from death to life so that he might be preeminent preeminent is to have first place to have supremacy he's the first and the only one who is supreme and over everything we had you look that up in your homework this week What does the um, word preeminent mean Well, when you looked at the connecting thread of Colossians, you'll see that this is the first statement that we drew out of Colossians right here. He is supremely sufficient. He and he alone is first and supreme. The false teachers were trying to add regulations or or secret knowledge to the faith, as we'll see later in this book. But Paul is saying it's only Christ. Christ is the one who has first place. And you know, at the beginning of each week, we ask you to look for repeated words, and I think that is very beneficial. This week we saw a lot of he and a lot of prepositions, didn't we? But there's one word in the whole it's only one time in the whole New Testament, not only in this book, but in the whole New Testament, and it's preeminent. And it only refers to Jesus Christ. I think that says something very important about that word and who he should be placed in our life. In verse 19, Paul says that in the New American Standard, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And the fullness he's talking about is the fullness of deity. And this is in keeping with verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. So do you think there's a point that Paul's trying to get to here? Jesus is God. He's God's imprint. He's the exact image. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He's the head of the church He's first, he's over everything. That doesn't give us a lot of room to wiggle, does it, when we're describing him? Well, our second main question today is, what is Jesus' role? And that's going to come in verse 19. We're going to back up to the beginning because I'm a teacher and I can't split a sentence. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And now here's Jesus' role, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus was sent to reconcile all things to the Father. God is making a provision, a way for sinners to be reconciled with him. So the word reconciled here, we had to look that up too, is to change from one condition to another or to bring back into a state of harmony. Now I like that second definition to bring back into a state of harmony because I think it's referring to how God made Adam and Eve to live with him in harmony and then they sinned and sin entered the world for all mankind and all of creation and after that we have to be reconciled with God because God is holy and he is pure and he cannot be with sin he's made a way for sinners to be reconciled and how did God do that when he sent his son to die on a cross in payment for our sin? When he died, he made atonement for our sin and peace was made with God by the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. So thirdly, what is our position before God? Well, why do we need this reconciliation that we've been talking about? Here it is in verse 21. Let's read it. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. His role was to die for sinners, people who were alienated, estranged, shut out from God. He died for those who were hostile in mind towards him. We've all certainly seen someone hostile in mind towards us. He died for those who were in the present participle of currently doing evil deeds. He died for people who were still active in their sin. One side note here is oftentimes we hear, I need to get all cleaned up before I can come to God, right? Let me get clean and then I'll come over. Well, right here in these verses, we see that's not how it works. We come to God as we are. And Jesus Christ does all the cleaning for us. We were alienated, we were hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds, and now he reconciles. In Romans 5, 6-8, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He now presents us holy and blameless before God. He can present us holy because he took the punishment and he took the condemnation from God for our sin. He willingly paid the penalty for our sin. This penalty was a literal death of hanging on the cross. He took personally my sin upon his cross and he died for my sin, and he made me right with God and have peace with God. Well, this happens when God calls you, and he stirs your heart to come to him, and you answer him in repentance and say, I want to be reconciled with God. So if God is stirring your heart today, please don't leave without talking to one of the leaders. We would love to talk with you, pray with you. Don't leave that undone today. Well, the fourth question that Paul is answering is how are we walking in our faith? We've seen who Christ is, what was his role, who we are before God, and now how are we walking? In verse 23, Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister, What does Paul mean if you continue in the faith? Does he insinuate that we can walk away from the faith? I don't believe that's what he means here, so let's look to Jesus' words directly to get clarity. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It seems Jesus is saying That if you really are followers of Christ, you will continue in the Word. It's not a choice that we'll be walking away from. It sounds like a true disciple will follow. The proof is in the pudding. Remember, in Colossae, there have been false teachers and false teachings. And if they adhered to a false teaching that required them to do a ceremony, eat something, don't eat something, go here, go there, don't do that, well, they might be following a false teacher, or a false Christ even. And so in Colossians, Paul is saying, no, if you are going to continue in the faith, that means you have believed in the true God. You have believed in the true Christ. Wayne Grudem says in Systematic Theology, one evidence of genuine faith is continuing in his word. That is, continuing to believe what he says and living a life of obedience to his commands. Paul is saying continue in the faith in a manner that is stable and steadfast. Stable means grounded, settled, just what you would think. And steadfast means seated or immovable. So continue on, seated, grounded, immovable in your faith. He also states not to shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It seems Paul wants to remind his readers continually that it's the gospel, Christ's birth, Death and resurrection, and he doesn't want us to move away from that. As believers, we never leave the hope of the gospel. We don't just come to faith in the gospel and then move on to bigger and better things. No, the gospel is the hope for us to live out our daily lives as Christians. Paul wants him to see that they began this faith journey by believing the word of truth, the gospel. And as a result of focusing on Christ, They started to grow and demonstrate fruit. But if they take their eyes off Christ and listen to another voice, then they'll be moving in the wrong direction. Let's think about our own faith and ask ourselves, how are we continuing in the faith? Is it grounded? Is it immovable? Do we have faith this morning? Have we in some way set aside the gospel and moved to something that we perceive to be loftier? Well, I came across this week the story of John Newton. It was a perfect timing because we're considering our state before we came to God. And I'm going to read it to you because it's a beautiful story of redemption and God's growth. So the story of John Newton. The Greyhound has been thrashing about in the North Atlantic storm for over a week. Its canvas sails were ripped and the wood on one side of the ship had been torn away and splintered. The sailors had little hope of survival, but they diligently worked the pumps, trying to keep the vessel afloat. On the 11th day of the storm, Sailor John Newton was too exhausted to pump. So he was tied to the helm and tried to hold the ship to its course. From 1 o'clock until midnight, he was at that helm. With the storm raging fiercely, Newton had time to think. His life seemed as ruined and as wrecked as the battered ship he was trying to steer through that storm. Since the age of 11, he had lived a life at sea. Sailors were not noted for the refinement of their manners, I guess, but Newton had, re- had a reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which even shocked many a sailor. John Newton was known as the Great Blasphemer, His mother had prayed he would become a minister and had taught him early in life the scriptures. And some of those early childhood teachings came to mind now. He remembered Proverbs and in the midst of that storm, those verses seemed to confirm Newton in his despair. John Newton knew he had rejected his mother's teachings and that he had led other sailors into unbelief. Certainly he was beyond hope and beyond saving, even if the scriptures were true. Yet Newton's thoughts began to turn to Christ. He found a New Testament and he began to read Luke 11:13. It seemed to assure him that God might still hear him. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. So on that day at the helm, March 21st, 1748, was a day Newton remembered ever after for, quote, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Many years later, as an old man, Newton wrote in his diary on March 21st, 1805, not well able to write, but I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. Only God's amazing grace could and would take a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor and transfer him into a child of God. Newton never ceased to stand in awe of God's work in his life again. Though Newton continued in his profession of sailing and slave-trading for a time, his life was transformed, and he left slave-trading, and he took a job as a tide surveyor in Liverpool. Then he began to think he was called to ministry. In 1764, at the age of 39, John Newton began 43 years of preaching the gospel of Christ. John and his beloved wife, Mary, moved to a little market town of Olney. For Sunday evening services, Newton often composed a hymn, which developed the lessons and the scripture for the evening. The most famous of those was called Faith's Review and Expectation. Today, we know that song is Amazing Grace. So in closing today, what I'd like us to do is to stand and to sing and to pray and to praise the first verse of Amazing Grace. But I'm going to tell you I'm turning off the um, mic. (laughs)